Think of that thing that we put on the table kind of in the back uh, once a month. We don't think of anything really like a liturgical calendar or anything like that. But uh, the two liturgical events during the year that I, I love celebrating, I love celebrating Advent. We all know when that is. Advent's when? Advent's Christmas. Uh, and then Lent. Uh, Lent actually begins today. Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter Sunday. And so we're going to take a break uh, from the book of Revelation for a few weeks. And we are going to begin preparing ourselves uh, for Easter. Uh, So what I thought we would do is we would go with some passages that are traditionally uh, preached during Lent. Um, And for today, I have selected Psalm 32. Um, Psalm 32 is a song about the joy of being forgiven by sin. And I don't know about y'all, but that's a pretty joyful thing, isn't it? It's a pretty joyful thing to be forgiven of our sin, but we almost kind of take it for granted. um, That that's kind of the, just kind of, oh yeah, well, yeah, God did this, but now my Christianity is about, it's it's about, you know, the deeper things. Y'all, I'm sorry, there's nothing deeper than what Jesus did on the cross. There's nothing deeper than that. You don't grow out of that. You don't grow past that. You don't get big. The, the, all, all growth and maturity in the faith is, is understanding that more and more and more and more and more. Uh, so I wanted to go back to Psalm 32 and us look at the blessedness of forgiveness today. And uh, if you hear what we're about to read and then think of the psalm we just sang, you'll see that it's almost word for word. So if you'll stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Psalm 32, and we're going to read all of it. Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, through my groaning all the day long. For day and, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Father. Um, Lord, I do pray that we would rejoice in being forgiven today, that we would rejoice in the grace and mercy that you gave us at the cross, and that we would begin eagerly looking forward to celebrating Easter Sunday, remembering the day that that you, Jesus, came out of that grave with the keys to death and hell, trampling over death by death and bestowing upon us life. Um, Lord, we love you, and we trust that you will use your word to speak to our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So, uh, Psalm 32. Uh, it's, I always get a kick out of preaching the Psalms because we don't typically think, like, when's the last time that you sat down and just combed through a hymn line by line and tried to... Now, we probably should do this more often. You know, there's a lot of good theology 
in hymns, but we don't typically think of songs or songs as something that you sit down and examine. Yet here we are doing that. These are inspired scripture that the, the, the synagogues used to sing these. And in a, in, a, in a better world, we would sing more of these uh, in church. Um, this just not become part of our tradition, which I think is a sad thing. Um, so I want to use them, you know, when we can, especially on days like today. Um, and and I, I appreciate us getting able to do that um, and, and Mark and Joyce making that happen. Um, that, that, was, that, was, that was really neat. Um, so I want to talk about the blessings of forgiveness this morning in ways that it's good to be forgiven. So first I want to see the blessedness of forgiveness in verse 1 and 2. And I want to set up something as we look through this psalm that there is a running theme through Psalm 32 that is the relationship between human action and divine action. That there is this constant interplay between what the man does and what God does or what the man doesn't do and sometimes what God doesn't do. That there is always a relation between what we do and how God responds to it. Alright? So first, let's look, let's look at the beginning here. Blessed. Blessed is who? He whose transgression is forgiven. He whose sin is covered. The man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. When I was studying this passage, I looked at it. One whose transgression is forgiven. Is that something that the man did? No. If somebody's going to forgive sin, it's going to have to be God who does it. That's, that, that's passive on the part of the man. His transgression is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. Who did that? God or the man? God did it. We can't cover our sin. No matter how hard we might want to try. Scripture says what? Be sure your sin will find you out. You can't cover it. No matter how hard you want to. If your sin's going to be covered, it's got to be God who does it. The man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Let me wind up my softball throw. Who does that one? Whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. The Lord did that. That's a softball question. So in all of these things, God did it. Transgression is forgiven. Sin is covered. Iniquity is not imputed. God did that. What's the one thing that the man did? And in whose spirit there is no deceit. What is deceit? Deceit is lying. It's deceiving. It's deception. It's pretending that something isn't a way, isn't one way when it actually is, or pretending that something is one way when it actually isn't. This man in whose spirit is no deceit, who has been open and honest with God about his transgressions, about his sins, about his imperfection, for him to do anything else to say, no, I don't have anything I need to be forgiven of. No, I don't have anything. I'm, I'm, that would all be pretending. That would all be deceit. The one defining characteristic of the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity is that there is no deceit in his spirit. Openness and honesty before God are an important component here of the blessedness of forgiveness. Now let's look at how this works itself out. The psalmist says, when I kept what, church? Silent. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. This is actually what we're concerned about. My bones grew old. 
I am the ripe old age of 31 <laughs> as of January. And I, you know, I have a, a tiny little rug rat running around my house and all of her toys are small and are on the floor. And she goes to bed. She's got this little pegboard. It's got a little thing that you put little pegs in. And you, got to, you can't leave the pegs on the floor. Because if you do, the only thing worse than stepping on one of those is stepping on a Lego. You ever stepped on a Lego barefooted? It's the worst thing. So if you see the pegs, man, a lot of her toys get left out, right? We leave a lot of their toys out. A lot of her toys get left out. But you know what doesn't get left out? Those pegs. Because I don't want to step on them. So to get them, I've got to go down. Let's see if they'll, let's see if they'll do it. There we go. Y'all heard that? Every single time. And I'm only 31. It's just going to get better as time goes by. Like a fine wine, which we don't drink because we're Baptist. What? Huh? Yes. Yes. It improves. Um, so your bones grow old. The idea is you're losing your strength. You're losing your sturdiness. You're just kind of jelly. Your bones are growing old. They can't, bear, they can't bear up the weight like they used to. They're not strong like they used to. They're not rigid like they used to be. He said, my bones grow old. Why? Why did his bones grow old? He kept silent. Except for my groaning all the day long. He's not actually saying anything. He's not actually saying anything. This is not mourning. This is, not, this is what you do when you have those aches and pains and, and bone issues. You don't, there, there's not really anything you say about that. It's more just like a... Uh, 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 uh. No. Um, yeah, Frankenstein, exactly. Um, it's, it's not words. It's just an expression of pain. It's an expression of misery. It's an expression of I need WD-40. It's an expression of just you don't like the way you feel. It's not designed to fix anything. He's silent and he's groaning. And the response to that is his bones are growing old. How do I know that's a response? He says four. This is an explanatory. For why are his bones growing old? Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. His bones are growing old and what else? My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Now that's passive. Was turned. He is not turning his vitality into the drought of summer. Somebody else is. He's talking about God. God's hand is heavy upon him. God's hand being heavy upon him is turning his vitality, his energy, his get up and go, his strength. God is just sapping that and turning it into the drought of summer. Y'all, y'all, this is this is middle South Georgia. This is y'all know what the summer drought feels like when it gets hot. To quote Jerry Clower, it is forevermore hot. It's bad. It's like you, you walk out and the heat punches you in the face and, and you don't have the energy to do anything as long as you are in that heat. 
That's what the psalmist is saying. When I kept silent, I did not confess. All I did was groan about the way that I felt. I didn't open my mouth. I didn't say anything. The response to that was the consciousness of my sin that I have, that I know is there, but that I'm not confessing, that I'm not doing anything about, is that God is eating my lunch. His hand is heavy upon me. I don't have any vitality. I don't have any energy. I am tore up about this sin, but I'm not doing anything about it. But at the very beginning of this, we've already told, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, or is forgiven, whose sin is covered, the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. If you want that blessedness, what is the roadmap to having it? Don't be quiet. Don't just groan. Don't just be silent. Confess your sin to God. In Luke 18, verses 10 through 14, Jesus tells a parable and says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. God, look at all of my goodness. Wouldn't you be privileged to have someone like me in heaven? That's kind of his attitude. Now, we know from Jesus' earthly ministry, though, He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look all good, but on the inside, there's death and decay and rotting things. It's not that the Pharisees had less sin. They had just as much as everybody else. But what were they not doing? Confessing it. That was the consternation that Jesus had toward them. You don't see any reason you think you need forgiveness. But it's there. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He wasn't quiet. He didn't just groan and not say anything. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said, if you want the blessedness of forgiveness, be honest with God about the fact that you need it. Don't pretend that we're not sinners. Y'all, for anyone who's ever wanted to know, Stapleton Baptist is not a church full of perfect people. Pastor included. I'm just as jacked up as everybody else in this room. The only difference is calling. God called us to have different tasks within His church. That's the difference between me and you. It's not, we don't have different degrees of salvation here. We're all saved by the same blood if you've given your life to Christ. That forgiveness is what saves us. Okay, so... If you think that, you know, there are degrees here and there's some of us that get to stand out here and say, oh God, look at how great I am. The other ones have to fall down and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh Uh-uh. Jesus is saying every single one of us better be like the tax collector because we've all got reasons that we need to fall on our face and ask God for mercy. The blessedness of forgiveness comes because honesty about sin before God brings blessing. 
be open with God about our sin if we want to experience the blessing of forgiveness. Second, I want us to see the vulnerability of forgiveness. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> or excuse me, not, uh, not, not verse 3. Um, uh, verse 5. This man says, I acknowledged my sin to you. In my iniquity, I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. These are all human actions. Remember I told you there was going to be a constant play between human actions and divine actions? These are all actions that the human took, that the man took. Instead of silence and groaning, in verse 5 he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. My iniquity I have not hidden. That is an action. That means I'm not pretending anymore that I've got everything together. And then finally, he verbalizes. I I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He's no longer silent. He's no longer just groaning. He's no longer pretending everything is okay. He is actually moving on this. Now, what do I mean he's actually moving on this? This, by the way, y'all, is the theological reason that I try and give you during our invitation. Have you ever noticed, most of y'all in here have sat under several of my invitations where I say, hey, I'm going to stand right here. If you want to come down the aisle and talk to me and say, I need to give my life to Christ, I need to be forgiven, you can do that. If walking the aisle is too much for you, I want you to fill out the guest card on the side of your bulletin and put it in the offering plate so that I know to follow up with you. If you miss that, but you still need to talk to me, I want you to catch me at the back door so that you can talk with me about giving your life to Christ and being forgiven of your sin. I want you to have an opportunity to respond, to do something, to say, I, God, I need to be forgiven. I need you to forgive me. Now, you don't need me to do that. You can confess your sin to God right there in your pew. I'm a pastor. I'm not a priest. You don't have to go through me. Jesus Christ is your great high priest. You can go straight to Him and say, Jesus, I need to be forgiven and your blood shed on the cross is the way that that happens. You can go straight to Him for that, but do you know the one way you won't be forgiven? Silence and groaning. Pretending that your sin is not there. Acting like it doesn't exist. Deceit in your spirit. Whereas this man says, I acknowledge my sin. I didn't hide my iniquity. I confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what is God's response to it? And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now y'all, that seems... We can just gloss past that verse. Real quick. Because we, we almost take forgiveness of sin for granted. We're like, oh yeah, Jesus did that. Guys, Jesus died to purchase that. It's free, but it's not cheap. It was not a simple fix. Do you understand that God forgiving your sin took the heaviest lifting in the history of the universe? That God is a just judge who can't just pretend that sin's not there. He can't just overlook it and ignore it and wink at it and go, that's going to just be our little secret. He can't do that. 
Any more than a judge who's got somebody on trial for murder with ironclad evidence and a unanimously convicting jury, the judge can't look at the murderer and say, you know what, I know you feel really bad about the fact that you killed that person, so I'm not going to sentence you. I'm actually going to give you mercy. We would not say, oh, that's such a righteous judge. We wouldn't say, we would say that judge is horrible. The evidence was ironclad. We know they did it. The jury convicted as they should have because the evidence was ironclad. Where's the justice? God is a just judge. For God to forgive sin, somebody got to pay. Somebody had to pay. And Jesus did. He suffered all of that. So that we could be forgiven. And all God asks is that we come to Him and we acknowledge the fact that we need it. Repent. That's all He wants. He doesn't want your money. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't pretend to be pretty enough to get it. Wear all the right clothes. Go all the right places. Associate with all the right people. You can't do that. Jesus has done it. And all He wants you to do is acknowledge your sin and ask Him for mercy. And as soon as this man says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Just like that. Just like that. Notice that all the human actions are the reversals of previous human actions. Originally, He was... Silent, he was groaning, and God had a heavy hand on him and was sapping his vitality. But then he reverses it, acknowledges his sin, he speaks, he doesn't hide iniquity, and God immediately forgives the iniquity of sin. So if this reversal of actions is so easy, why don't more people do it? If being forgiven is so simple, why don't more people do it? Answer. Openness with God requires vulnerability. To confess your sin to God means you actually have to confess your sin. You know, I've, I've heard of people before that, you know, maybe they get sick with something and they know they're sick, but they don't want to go to the doctor about it. Because as soon as they go to the doctor and the doctor gives them that diagnosis, it's real. Have you ever had something that you really don't want to do and so you don't talk about it? You push it to the back of your mind. You push it to the back of your schedule because the longer you can put it off, the longer you can pretend it's not there. Have you ever done anything like that? Scripture is cautioning you, please don't do that with your sin. Please don't pretend it's not there because Scripture has a word for pretending it's not there. It's called deceit. And the longer you do that, the longer you will have a heavy hand on you and the longer God will sap your vitality and and let it become the drought of summer. The longer you deprive yourself of the blessing of forgiveness. The reason that more people don't go to God for forgiveness is because openness requires vulnerability. 
Genesis 3, verses 9 through 11, the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, listen to Adam. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you not eat, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you you shouldn't eat? As soon as Adam sinned, what did he start doing? Hiding. He started hiding. He didn't want to be in front of God anymore. He didn't want to be in his presence. He didn't feel comfortable there anymore. But the good news is, who came looking for Adam? God did. God went looking for Adam. And do you think God didn't know? Do you think he's walking around the garden going, I know I had two humans in here. Where did I put them? He's not like that. When he says, where are you? This is giving Adam an opportunity to talk. Adam, don't be silent. Adam, don't just groan. Adam, talk to me. Who told you you were naked? Did you do this? Acts 5, 3-4, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, deceit, and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You haven't lied to men but to God. If you go read Acts 5, all the disciples, all the, all the Christians, they were selling property they had and bringing the money to the church so that they could take care of the poor. And <clears throat> seemingly, there was praise for that. That was a praiseworthy action. And Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, wanted in on it. And they wanted to sell their property and get some of the praise, but... They didn't want to actually give all of the money from the proceeds of the sale. They wanted the reputation. They wanted the honor, but they didn't want the sacrifice. And they knew that it was shameful what they were doing. So what did they do? They hid it. We just won't tell everybody that we sold it for more than we're giving. We know it's wrong, so we're going to hide it. Peter said it would have been better if you just said, you know what? We're having a hard time letting go of all of this, but we want to give something. So we sold some property and we just wanted to come lay this part of it at your feet. Now, does that show a little bit of spiritual immaturity on their part? Sure it does, but it's better than lying to the Holy Spirit and getting struck dead. Right? As soon as, as we sin... And we don't want to be open up about it. We start hiding. We start pulling back from God. We start pulling back from other believers. We don't want to talk about it. We want to pretend it's not there. We want to pretend everything's fine. But I can't be in God's presence right now because God knows. No, if you want to confess your sin, you've got to embrace that vulnerability and that openness and go to God. Because honestly, he knows your sin anyway. He knew where Adam was. He knew that he was hiding. He knew that Ananias and Sapphira were lying about the price. So... Why did he ask? He wanted to give them a chance to be open about it. There's no reason not to be open with a forgiving God who knows your sin anyway. So the blessedness of forgiveness, the vulnerability of forgiveness. Now let's look at the security of forgiveness. Look at verse 6. Psalmist says, For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. For this cause. We've got a purpose that we're looking for here. He's got a reason that he wants to go to God. Now, who's, who's going to do this? Everyone who is godly. 
How do you determine who's godly? Because the one who is godly prays to God in a time when he may be found. That's what marks a godly person. A godly person is someone who embraces openness and vulnerability with God and embraces his need for forgiveness of his sins. That's what makes one of us godly. And now look at what God says he'll do. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm grouping this by God's actions because we're all going toward a goal. Because remember, the psalmist says, for this cause. There is a cause. There's something he's seeking. The man acts and prays to God in a time when he may be found. God acts in verse 8 and says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. What is the joint goal of the psalmist and God? That the psalmist confesses his sin to God and prays to him in a time when he may be found. God responds to him and says, he says, I'll guard you. I'll guide you. I'll teach you. I'll instruct you with the result that surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. That God is his hiding place. That God will preserve him from trouble. And that God will surround him with songs of deliverance. Because the godly person in his openness and vulnerability prays to God at the appropriate time, i.e. when it's not too late. Because he does this, God responds to him and says, you know what? I'm going to reach down and I'm going to grow. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to make sure that you go where you need to go, that you don't go where you don't go. I'll watch over you with my eyes. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm coming with you now. You're not on your own. I'm not just going to sign you off and go, all right, cool, check. No, I'm going to go with you. I've got a vested interest in this. And because of that, the floodwaters don't touch him. God Himself is His hiding place. God Himself preserves Him from trouble. God Himself surrounds Him with songs of deliverance. Instead of being surrounded by the waters of judgment, He's surrounded by God singing about His deliverance. I don't know about y'all, but I'd rather be surrounded by God singing than by God judging. <coughs> so what does a godly person do? A godly person confesses their sin at the appropriate time. And when I say the appropriate time, I don't mean the invitation. That's not what I'm talking about. Yes, that is an appropriate time. But when is the appropriate time? Right now. Today. This second. Because you're not guaranteed the next one. This is the appropriate time. And what God does for this person when they confess their sin at the appropriate time is that he spares them, he instructs them, he teaches them, and he guides them. But I did ask the question, what are these waters? What's the flood of great waters? What's the trouble? What's he hiding from? What, what's he being delivered from? Because it's not like there's something that, that's just this... I don't, know, I don't even know how to say it. That It's, it's not something that's just kind of outside God that's coming to attack this person. And God's like, oh, no, I got it. I see it coming. I'm going to protect you from it. That's not what's going on. Whose hand was heavy upon the unrepentant sinner? God's. Who was sapping the vitality and turning it into the drought of summer? God was. Who is it that's going to be sitting on the throne when the books are opened? God. Who is it that is going to be the great final judge? God. 
Who is it that will be judging sin that has not been repented of? God, there's your waters. That's the danger that God's protecting you from. His own wrath. How do I know that? If you go back to the very beginning of the psalm, Psalm 1. Psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. Now remember, who are the ungodly? They don't confess their sin. They pretend it's not there. But they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. That God is saying there is coming a day when the books are going to be opened and the greatest thing you have to fear is me. Now, who is the only one who can protect you from the wrath of God? Jesus. Who himself is God. The only protection from God is God. There's no other way to get around it. But fortunately, Jesus is more than up to the task. Romans 8, 31-34 says, what, should, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It's Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. This is Paul's roundabout way of saying if you want to win in God's court of law, you got to prosecute against an attorney named Jesus. Do you think you can win that case? Never mind the fact that the judge is the attorney's father. And also the adoptive parent of the defendant. It doesn't look like a fair trial, does it? It's fixed. The fix is in. It was fixed on Calvary 2,000 years ago when the sentence was carried out before the trial even started. You can't win that court case. But let me tell you something. If you don't come in there with an attorney named Jesus, you've already lost The floodwaters will come near to you. You will not be hearing songs of deliverance. You will not find a hiding place. You will not be preserved from trouble. You need Jesus for that. Vulnerable openness with God results in security because He delights in guiding and guarding those who come to Him for mercy. And finally... The fellowship of forgiveness. Look at verse 9. Lord, this needs to be my life verse. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding. 
which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near to you. You ever heard somebody say horses are smart? They are. They're smart enough to know that when they don't want to have to do what you're telling them to do, they outweigh you by about a factor of four, and they can kick you and kill you and just do their own thing. They can, and they know that. So you know what a bit and bridle's for? It's got little little things that go right in their cheeks right here. So when you when you pull the pull the reins, it pulls the bit. And the horse has got the choice. I can either be stubborn and stay here and let this thing dig into the inside of my cheek. Have y'all ever bit a Dorito wrong? It's kind of like that, except way worse. I can either stubbornly stay here and let the bit poke me on the inside of my cheek and bloody me up, or I can feel the light poke of it beginning to go that way, and I can go, oh, hey, let's go this way. Or, oh, I go that way, because the reins are pulling it. God is saying, you know, the horse is senseless in that regard. That if you've got a bit in the horse's mouth, where the horse is going is not really up to the horse. God is saying, don't be like that. I don't want to force you. I want to convince you that it's in your best interest to come to me. Don't be like that. He says many, so we got some negative results. So to the wicked, the wicked who do not confess their sin, who have deceit in their spirits, who pretend that there's nothing wrong, to the wicked, what do they get? Many sorrows. Human inaction, refusal to confess sin, refusal to admit it, results in divine inaction. There's no mercy. If you don't ask for forgiveness, you don't get forgiveness. If you don't ask for mercy, you don't get mercy. If you tell God to leave you alone, He will. Human inaction, divine inaction. To the wicked, they get many sorrows. But he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. To the one who comes to God and acts and says, I need your forgiveness. I want to speak. I want to confess this. I want to acknowledge this. God surrounds him with mercy. And then you get this celebration. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, there has been parallels between what the righteous get and what the wicked get all the way through this song. But you know what the wicked don't get? They don't get the celebration. There's no parallel to it. That itself is the parallel. Jesus gives it to us. This is not on your handout. But Luke 13, 23-28. One said to Him, Lord, are there few who are saved? This is Luke 13, 23-28. He said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. One of my pastoral mentors said something to me that arrested me and has stuck in my head ever since he said it. And he said, Josh, have you ever realized that the way to hell runs straight through Main Street on heaven? 
And I said, you've got to explain that to me because I have no idea how one gets to hell through heaven. He said, well, where's the judgment at? It's at the throne of Jesus, right? Well, where's the throne? It's in heaven. Where are the saints? I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. It was one of the most terrifying prospects in my Christian walk that this pastor shared with me that was worth thinking about that someone who has refused to repent of their sin, who has refused to confess and seek the mercy of God for the split moment before they enter into judgment, they see what they missed. They stand in heaven and see the forgiven saints celebrating their eternal abundant life. They walk to judgment on the streets paved with gold. They hear the angels singing the praise of God. They hear the saints singing holy, holy, holy. They see the tree of life in the new Jerusalem whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. They see the waters running out of a newly constructed, glorified temple in which the throne of Christ is, but they see it on the way there for judgment. And they get to Jesus and they see beauty like they've never imagined and power and glory like they can't even fathom. And they're in awe of everything around. And the only thing they hear from that throne is, depart from me, I never knew you. And they are thrust out. After seeing it, thrust out. But no, we do know you. You taught in our streets. You ate with us. I don't know you. You had an opportunity to know me, but you just wanted to stay silent and groan and pretend it wasn't there. It's too late now. If you want the fellowship... Confess your sin. 1 John 1.3 says, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 1.7 If we walk in the light as He is in the light, walk in the light meaning clearly, openly, I've confessed my sin to God. I'm not pretending that I'm perfect, that I've got it all together. I'm confessing that I need the blood of Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. You are invited to enjoy fellowship with God if you will confess your sin to Him and repent. And to refuse that offer is to be cast out and to miss the celebration.